0: As we come to this second lecture, I want to review very quickly that first principle of incarnation, which flows from the mandate of Christ to go and disciple all nations. Not intending to make mere converts, but to make learners Disciples, followers of Christ with the objective of reaching the whole world. And Jesus shows us how that is done in his own life, beginning by becoming a servant. And that commitment really had been made before the worlds were made when he accepted the penalty of our rebellion and the judgment of our sin and the cross having already been accepted in advance made each step that Christ took on earth a conscious acceptance of God's eternal purpose for his life now just think about it this having already been decided he already was committed to his death. So whatever happened to him in this world was not a surprise. He had already accepted the suffering, humiliation, and the death of the cross. And this found expression in the way he lived showing people that he cared about them and he loved them he was seeking a way by which they could comprehend the tremendous teaching of the gospel but more people were attracted to him than he could ever personally minister to in a personal way and that's why we have to come now to the second principle of selection. Now, this is not an easy principle to keep in focus, especially when you are effective as a caregiver. There are more people out there that are looking for help than you can possibly give them in your own time and energy. And in fact, the more that you minister among them, the more conscious you will be of the need of this hurting world. And yet, your objective is to reach the world. And for that to be accomplished, men and women have to be raised up who will have a shepherd's heart, who know the way, the way of the cross, and who will commit themselves to lead others in that way. And so Jesus in his busy ministry of compassion, in his ministry to the physical and social and emotional needs of people. He was alert to those who wanted to learn more. And you begin to see this unfold at the onset of his active ministry, having left home at about the age of 30, we read that he went over to the other side of the Jordan, and he joined what was then in progress, the greatest religious awakening that Israel had known in over 400 years. The revival of John the Baptist. Not a bad place to begin a ministry but where people ob- obviously are already looking for help, many people had already been baptized under repentance, and it was there that Jesus Himself came and at the hand of the prophet John was baptized, putting His seal upon this great movement of revival. And not only that, The Baptist recognized and announced to the people, Jesus was the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Behold, He's come. Look at Him. Now try to imagine what that statement would have meant to this crowd that had gathered around at the preaching of John. We're told people had come there from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even as far north as Tyre and Sidon. Tremendous interest focused now upon the preaching of John. And at the very height of the excitement, he identifies Christ as the promised Lamb of God. Now, you can imagine the opportunity this posed for Jesus. Because The faith of Israel rested upon the significance of the sacrifice, and for thousands of years they had been bringing their offerings to the altar as an indication of their desire to be reconciled to God and to receive His blessing. In the normal sacrifice, the sin and the trespass offering, they would lay their hand upon the head of this innocent victim, usually a lamb or a goat, could be in the case of a large animal, a bullock. They would confess over it. And then with their own hand, with a sharp instrument, they would cut the throat of that helpless animal. The blood would spurt forth, be caught in the censer by the priest who would pour it upon the altar or then throw it at the base of the altar. Sometimes in the case of a large offering, it would be tied to the horns of the altar. But it was necessary for the blood to be applied to the altar representing God's dwelling place. It was more than a visible execution of judgment upon that which was worthy of death. It was also a display of tremendous faith For there was no other reason to bring the offering except this was what God had said He would accept when we truly identified ourselves with that offering. The shedding of the blood may have been necessary because of our sin, but the desire to be reconciled to God, that's what really mattered. That was without sin. The thought and intent of the heart. And when that desire truly reflected the intention of our spirit, it said more eloquently than with words that we loved God supremely more than we loved ourselves. And though it was necessary because of our rebellion. God accepted that intention of our heart because it expressed a love that was pure. And it declared that though God was altogether separate from the unclean thing, and though His justice had to be satisfied, yet He loved that which He had made and was always seeking a way to be restored to fellowship, And the blood upon the altar was that way. Of course, these Old Testament sacrifices, while God honored them where there was true faith, it was only because of the perfect sacrifice to which they all pointed. And you'll remember it was during the Passover season while worshipers literally were bringing their lambs to the altar that Jesus was led outside the city gate and nailed to the cross where He suffered there for us, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. And to be told that Jesus was the one who had been represented in these altars, that He was the one actually embodied in that desire to find atonement with God, at atonement with God, was now embodied in the person of Jesus who was standing in their midst. Open your eyes. Behold the Lamb of God. He will take away the sin of the world. Don't you think you would have gotten excited? Imagine what this would meant to those who truly understood the Old Testament sacrificial teaching. To say nothing of the prophecies. Why? Here was the one they had staked their whole life upon. Here was the one in whom they had put their trust for salvation. He's standing in your midst. He's the promised Messiah. Well, certainly, Jesus at this point could acknowledge that recognition and immediately enlist the following of the Baptist because John said, Hereafter, he's willing to decrease in order that Jesus could increase. He could have enlisted his followers, and if he needed any more assistance, he could have used his miraculous power had he desired. To raise the dead, that would have been nothing for Jesus. Why doesn't He do it? Why doesn't He gather a vast army and sweep down upon Jerusalem and on to Rome and declare Himself the Emperor of the world? He has every right to do so because He is the legitimate King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Indeed, this was what the Jewish people had been looking for. Someone who would deliver them from any adversity, any hardship, any suffering. This was the way they had come to interpret the messianic promises. Of course, it was not a a true reading. It was a false interpretation, but it was the popular way the majority of the people expected the Messiah to come. If you've lived long enough to realize that's the way most people are still looking for their Deliverer. Someone who can take away any suffering, deliver them from any oppression, and satisfy all of their self-centered desires. But that's not the kind of kingdom that Jesus has come to reign over. But here the stage was set for a great, mighty revolution that Jesus could lead as the head, invincible in his authority and power. And yet something happens. It's astounding. It's incredible. You can hardly even imagine it. For what does the Bible tell us at this point, at the onset of his active ministry, when he has every opportunity now to receive the plaudits of the world? He walks away. And so far as we know, never again is he actively identified with that great. Mass following of the Baptist. In fact, it created consternation in the mind of the prophet, and later he sends a delegation to inquire if Jesus could actually be the Christ. Well, I can see why he was confused. He reflected the popular expectations of the people. And indeed, it is difficult for us to recognize how jesus has come not to satisfy our fleshly desires not to establish a kingdom that can give us relief from all oppression and suffering but he has come to raise up a church that is holy the gates of hell cannot prevail against and he will not compromise his objectives. This isn't the first time that Israel had been caught up in a great revival. As you've read the Old Testament, you see how again and again God visited his people in spiritual renewal, in times of refreshing from his presence. It's a beautiful way, in fact, to study the Old Testament, to see these recurring moments when the people are aroused by a great leader. Maybe it was, it was Joshua when he drew the line and told the people to decide which side they were going to get on, and then said for myself and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. And that precipitated a great revival for a while. But after a few years, it faded away. There are these high moments that you can see all the way through the Old Testament. You see them often come to focus when there is a great leader like a king who has the power of command. Like in the time of Asa or Jehoshaphat or Hezekiah or Josiah are after uh, the uh, exile, the revival of Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. These are great moments when the people are rallied to a commitment to return to the Lord, to rebuild the altar, to renew the sacrifice and, and commit themselves again to what they have promised to obey. We can be grateful for those revivals because they did serve to keep alive the the aspirations of what God wanted for His people. But they're not long-lived. Usually they fade away very soon as the leader dies or even as the leader himself loses direction. And the people soon return to their former estate. And through the Old Testament, it's one long history of of renewal and then apostasy, falling back sometime the last state is worse than the first, up and down, up and down and down more than up. The New Testament begins with that same pattern emerging, and that's where Jesus begins His ministry led now by the greatest revival that Israel had known in all 400 years. And Jesus walks away. What had been the problem in the Old Testament with these seasons of refreshing? Was it not the lack of leadership after the initial Leader left the scene. The lack of raising up persons who could perpetuate that vision and that dedication. We can believe, of course, there were always some faithful. We have reference again and again to the remnant, those who never bowed their knee to Baal, but they are not in prominent positions of leadership. But thankfully they have kept the law. They have remembered what God had promised and they have tried to follow him. But they never seem to be able to reproduce great leadership to, my, to, 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 to cultivate the masses who want someone to lead them like a shepherd. That's the problem, I think, that Jesus here is addressing in a very clear and and, uh, relevant way. He didn't come to have a temporary movement that would satisfy our immediate desires for, for blessing. He came to establish a kingdom that's eternal, in the heavens that's why I can see him walking away from this what appeared to be a tremendous opportunity at the onset of his ministry opportunity to enlist the multitudes at his command but as he left that great movement there were two of John's followers that noticed him leave John and Andrew. I suspect they were giving more attention to what the prophet had said. Or perhaps they had been more faithfully studying the scripture and they recognized the import of the Baptist announcement. But for whatever reason, when Jesus walked away, they started to follow and Jesus sees them out of the corner of his eye. And then he speaks to them. Say, who are you seeking? And you can, you can see them almost stutter. Well, 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 well uh, Master, where do you live? That's a good question. In light of what you've learned, wouldn't you want more information? How does Jesus respond? You remember? Well, come and see. Come on home with me. If you really want to learn about me, come and stay with me for a while. That's the way he began his evangelism, so far as we know, before he ever preached a sermon or worked a miracle or launched a crusade. Do you see what he's doing? He's calling out some men who want, to be discipled, who want to learn. One of them is so overjoyed he can hardly wait to get back and tell his brother he's found the Messiah. And so he brings his brother, Peter, to Jesus. We don't have the call of all of these early Disciples recorded, well, for that matter, there's only very brief portions of our Lord's life that are recorded in the Bible, about 50 pages or 50 days of his life altogether, brief portions of those days, which I can see as a blessing in disguise, for if everything had been written that could be written, John tells us there wouldn't be room in the world for all the books. It takes us a lifetime just to try to learn what's in one book. But of course, it's all the more reason we need to give attention to every word that is recorded here under the inspiration of the Spirit of God Himself. We do know, though, that the next day Jesus found Philip. Now, I suppose the extrovert, the person that's always looking for help, uh, he will take the initiative. But a person that's shy, that's kind of standing in the background, uh, you may have to dig him out. Jesus had to find Philip. But Philip immediately wanted to share what he had learned. It's beautiful these new believers that's why if you don't have new believers coming into your fellowship regularly you'll tend to get sort of content and fossilize after a while you've got to have some new blood coming in philip wanted to share what he had learned and he found nathaniel and told him what He had learned about Jesus and how he was the fulfillment of what had been written in the prophets. And Nathaniel was a bit incredulous. He wanted to know where he was raised, about his pedigree. When he found out that he had been brought up in uh, in Nazareth, that almost turned him off. He'd never heard of anything good coming out of that town before, but Philip has already learned a great lesson. Doesn't argue with him, doesn't preach to him, He says, you must come and see him for yourself. So he brought him to Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? And that's a clue to our strategy. We want people to get into the presence of reality. We want them to see the truth. Incidentally, that's why the church throughout the centuries, has been on the side of true science. And the great discoveries of science, if you go back in history, more than likely you will find a Christian. Because we know that any area of truth, if you follow it to its conclusion, if it's true, it will lead you to him who is the author of all truth. And you will see the face of Christ. No, we are open for inspection. We want people to come and examine what we believe. We will proclaim from the housetop the gospel that has redeemed us. Yes, we're grateful for those early disciples that immediately had a desire to share the good news. We don't have the call of many others. We do have the fishermen a few months later there at the Sea of Galilee. We have Matthew at the seat of custom. Of course, the work is continuing to grow, and uh, before Jesus returns to heaven, we're told there are about 500 believers. Paul mentions that in his letter but obviously this is a larger number than you can have a close relationship with. And so as the number of believers grew, Jesus selected 12, especially, to be with him. But even there, Peter, James, and John had a closer relationship. Have you noticed that? And even among the three, Peter seems to be the dominant one. Which underscores a principle. The smaller the group being taught, the greater the opportunity for learning. Do you see it? When this is recognized, then you can understand how everybody in the world with a few people can fulfill the Great Commission every day don't need a crowd you just need a few that will follow Christ and then teach others what they are learning you look at this group that Jesus has gathered around them and you wonder at first why would they be chosen they don't seem to have all the credentials that you normally look for in fact None of them don't appear to be graduates of a college or a university. Have you noticed that? What is even more surprising, none of them are members of the Levitical priesthood. What do you make of that? Now, Matthew came from a family that had a heritage of Levi, but obviously as a tax collector, he's so far backslidden. I mean, he's out of the action completely. No, this is not a gathering of what you would normally expect to be the most religious people. And uh, as you look at them, you recognize all of the limitations of of their culture. They are temperamental. Um, some of them want to sit at the right and left hand of the throne of Christ, proud. And it doesn't appear that uh, really they have much great potential. They are not even willing to associate with people like us. They were good Jews. And like any good Jew in that day, they would have felt contaminated if the shadow of a Gentile fell across their trail. Let's face it. These people were certainly prejudiced. We might call them bigoted. And that problem persisted in the church for a long time, even after Pentecost. It finally took a direct revelation from God before Cornelius would go, uh, before Peter would go to Cornelius' house and tell those poor souls that Jesus loved them. Now, I'm not saying that to justify their bias. I'm simply pointing out the kind of people that Jesus had on His hand not the kind that you would expect someday to turn the world upside down. And yet, there is something about them that we have to recognize. With the exception of the traitor, they followed him to the end. They wanted to learn more. And those are the kind of people that we look for you pray for God to raise them up don't you believe God's going to raise them up don't you think that he answers your prayers we'll keep your eyes open because they will likely come from that group that is very close to you beginning in your own family and reaching out to friends and neighbors and associates at work. But notice those that are receptive, those that seem to have this desire to learn more from you. You know, you will recognize later that desire has been planted in the heart by the Holy Spirit, and you're simply responding to what God is doing He initiates the whole undertaking. I think of a fellow down in Texas, my home state, that was arrested by uh, the sheriff for horse stealing. And the sheriff asked him that he wanted to be tried by the judge, Or by a jury of his peers." And um, the man looked confused. He said, "'Peers? Who's that?' And the sheriff explained, "'Well, that means somebody just like you.'" "'Oh,' said the horse thief. "'I'll take the judge. I don't want to be tried by a bunch of horse thieves.'" Now if you'll look around, you'll see your crowd, somebody that's already Related to you, somebody who has much in common with you where you already have some identity and perhaps some respect. And likely within that circle, you're going to have your greatest opportunity to fulfill the Great Commission. Now that circle will continually change as we grow, as we get older, there'll be new people Moving into it as others move out of it. But there will always be a few people that can be close to you at any given point in your life. And because you are limited in your own time, that inner circle where you pour your life out should be persons that will maximize what you want to teach. You've got to be protective of that time, or else other concerns and other activities will be so demanding. You'll be running here and there, taking care of all the other meetings, all the other programs, all the other parties. You'll be so busy doing the work around you that you don't really ever make disciples. And what a tragedy that is. I see it often. Because unless this is a conscious sense of, of, of direction, we get lost in the events that crowd in and demand our time. How is it with you? I I believe a few such persons are within the influence of every person. And likely there are people with whom you already have much in common. Your family, of course. Beyond that, a few others. So you are really responding to the opportunities that are apparent around you. Now I see in the case of Jesus, his disciples were all of the same sex, and give or take ten years, about the same age. I think it's worth noting, though, there were many women that also followed him, and they cared for some of his needs, but um, there was a more distant relationship with these ladies, who I think, may have been even more sensitive to spiritual things than many of the disciples. But there are proprieties in this kind of relationship that are obvious. And I think probably we will work best with those within our own sex and closer to our own age. But it doesn't necessarily mean that others are left out. I know in one of my groups, I, the, uh, where I've been meeting with students for many years, the dean called me in and said that the word had gotten out that I was closed to uh, just men and wouldn't let any of the ladies on the campus be a part of it. Because he said we were coming up for accreditation by the ATS and what will I say if one of her professors is is against the other gender and I said well I know what you mean I'll take care of it so I admitted some girls into my group and I think I can say honestly they were a little more spiritual than the boys it did change somewhat the complexion of the group but they still could learn and that's why I think the big consideration is the desire to really seek first the kingdom of God. And we should look for those persons, persons to, that have that, that kind of desire. And their willingness to respond to what they're learning and to put into practice what you're trying to teach is an indication of how serious they are. And you might look for those thoroughbreds. You know, there's a difference between a thoroughbred horse and just a a regular horse. A thoroughbred is a horse that goes back through generations in the breeding. That horse is, is taught to run and to run fast. They're not much good for just trotting around riding a horse on the farm. You can have an old plug horse for that. But a racehorse that wins is a thoroughbred. And they know how to run. And you're looking for people that seem to have that kind of desire. They want to go And they'll go as far as you will lead them. Have a few people like that around you. I think every pastor needs a few like that to help him. Every person with a few can be investing largely in those who have that desire to learn all they can. I don't believe you have to talk about it. In fact, I suggest you keep a low profile. A general doesn't go around and tell everybody in the camp what his battle plans are, but the general must know. The general must have a clear concept of his strategy or else the battle is already lost. And you must realize, too, how limited you are. And you cannot do everything that's expected. And so you prioritize those things that are of crucial importance. Life becomes increasingly a matter of priority. And those things that really matter, they come first. That's why I think this principle of selection has to be considered in the overall lifestyle of the Great Commission. That's why I say, too, It's easy to get it out of focus. And if you're not careful, you will spend so much energy letting other people tell you what to do, that when you do all of that, the things that are most important are left undone. Jesus looked for disciples. And I believe that every person wanting to live in the pattern of Jesus is going to have to maintain this principle. Not that you neglect the others because you love them too. Not that you diminish your outreach to the multitudes. That's still going on. Of course, even your disciples likely will be with you in that. But in the midst of your ministry, at its heart, there will be some that have a special bind to your heart. Others may not even be aware of it. And hopefully, you don't try to call attention to it. That's why I say, keep a low profile. The less you call attention to your strategy, I think, the more easily it will be to keep it in your mind. But it's still there. It's with you as you pray. These are the persons that always come to your attention when you're on your knees. You can't forget them. They're always in your thinking when you anticipate the future and how your life is going to unfold because you're looking ahead to the next generation. And beyond that, and even beyond that, and beyond until you see the objective of reaching the whole world. But for your part, it'll be with a few who catch this vision. In turn, who can go and impart it to others, who in turn will do the same. And someday, through the process of multiplication, the whole world will have an opportunity to hear the gospel. That's the plan.